We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. Let's pick up right where we left off and let's talk about the obvious issue with what we talked about. And that is, what do you do with the word wrath? What do you do with that? It's real. It's everywhere. And we, and we should take it seriously. Okay. And so, but once again, words matter less than how we picture words functioning. Right. So Jesus is the judge. Everybody unanimously agreed that we picture court official. But in scripture, it's more a defender, which is a much more beautiful way of looking at it. So when I say the wrath of God, the primary image is an active anger or retribution. Like we did something wrong, so God is ticked off and he is gonna, he, he's going to bring this kind of uh, a punishment around. And we'll call that the wrath of God. The, the, the question is, though, is that when the scripture writers wrote wrath of God, was that what they were thinking? And what, is there a better way to look at the wrath of God? And what about the, what about the early church? How did they define the wrath of God? And how do, how did they define things like, you know, inspiration, right? Like, so, so if, so inspiration just means God breathed on something to give it life, right? And so how do, we, how do we do that? And what are we talking about with this? So I'm going to try to put some language around wrath because there is one really problematic scripture, and that is in Romans 5, it says Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God, right? And it's like, like black and white. So, so if I'm saying that Jesus didn't die to save us from God, he was saving us from sin, Satan, and death, how do, what do you do with that? Like, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. So let me see if I can unpack some of this. If we could go, we already read those scriptures, so go to the next one. Yeah, so God does not change, and God is perfectly revealed in Christ. Now, if, if those statements are true, then wrath does not involve or require active punishment. The wrath of the Father is a self-inflicted experience of rejecting his loving care. Let me see if I can say it this way. That if God is love, then the primary ethic of love is consent. So let's say it that way. God's love is consent, then God's wrath is consent. Let me see if I can explain that. If God's love is consent, I consent to you first, which is actually what set Christianity apart as unique in the world, was a God that acted first. Every other God in the world was like, you come to my place at my moment, my time, do my ritual and my posture, and I might act on your behalf. In other words, you consent first and I might consent back, not Christianity. Christianity was God consents first, and then he humbly waits for your consent. But then that means you can non-consent. And if you non-consent, and then God consents to that non-consent, then the natural consequences of that would be wrath. Right? It would be that the wrath of God is not an active punishment. It's more you getting what you want. Let, 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 me, let me explain what I mean. Next slide. So I love in, the, in, in his book, Dr. Jerzak talks about wrath as a hammer-throwing contest. And he tells this great story about when he was a kid. His dad, his dad looked out of the window, and him and his friend were throwing a hammer. They, they, had a, they had a contest on who was stronger. And one of the ways they were going to guess on who was stronger was who could throw a hammer the highest in the sky. Can you see where this problem is going to come about? So his dad, in loving consent, comes out and says, In wisdom, bro, stop throwing hammers in the sky. 
right? That's a loving consent thing. And of course, Dr. Jerzak admits in the book that he non-consented to that wisdom consent, and him and his friend continued to throw hammers in the sky. And of course, you know where this story's going. One of them gets popped in the noggin, namely his friend, and it splits his head open, 20 stitches, whole kind of thing going on. And, and he was so distressed at the consequences of his friend getting hit in the head, he went and hid in his room thinking his dad was going to come in and punish him for throwing hammers in the sky. But what happened was, is his dad didn't punish him because the intrinsic internal consequences of the non-content sent to consent was punishment enough. But that could be called wrath. That when we see someone experiencing the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent, you could easily call that the wrath of God. But it's not God actively getting people. It's people non-consenting to God's consent, right? It's that sort of dynamic. Let me give you an example from Scripture, okay? Without reading the whole passage because it's long. Lamentations chapter 2 describe. Uh, yeah, go back for a second, but thanks. Just go back one. Uh, yeah, so God's wrath can be described as repulsive actions. Like Lamentations chapter 2 describes God doing things that he obviously wasn't doing. But the author thought that's what he was seeing, and we'll, I'll explain that in a second. But the poetic authors generally land on the loving presence of God in the pain. That's Lamentations chapter 3. So in Lamentations chapter 2, Jeremiah is, let me give you some historical context. Jeremiah is looking at what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem, and he's coming to a conclusion. The only explanation about this is that God is doing this to us, right? But if you keep reading, it just gets better and better and better. But Lamentations chapter 2 is frankly disturbing. I, I made a list of some of the things in there that Jeremiah says God was doing. Okay, And, this, and it just clearly says God did it. Right? Next slide. So this is Lamentations chapter 2. I, I, I made a list instead of reading it out. It says God ang God's anger is burning against us. God has thrown us down. God has forgot us. God burned us up. God is our enemy now. God has killed us. God caused the grief. God destroyed us without mercy. God let our enemies laugh at us. God is making it where women are eating their own babies. That's actually in there. God made it to where women are eating their own babies. No one escapes this wrath of God, right? This is how Lamentations chapter 2 is described. And once again, the Bible's like a Rorschach test. If you need evidence for a wrathful God, just read Lamentations chapter 2. It's great. It doesn't get any worse than that. God made women eat their own babies. Good Lord. God has thrown us down. God has forgotten us. God has abandoned us. God has let our enemies laugh at us. Now, if you're Jeremiah and you're looking at the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, are these conclusions reasonable? Sure. It's like, oh, the only explanation is that God, although he promised to protect us, has abandoned us. Because if God was protecting us, Nebuchadnezzar shouldn't be able to do this. If you read the whole story of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar goes into the Holy of Holies, steals the furniture, and doesn't die. Which leads to all kinds of problems. Because doesn't Leviticus say, if you go into the Holy of Holies, you will die? Then Nebuchadnezzar's like, nope, I'm stealing the furniture. And he didn't die. So the conclusion would be that God has left the building right? It's like, what, what happened here? Like, 
How? Of course, that kept happening, by the way. Tiglath Pileser destroyed the place. Antiochus Epiphanes in 157 put pig's blood in the Holy of Holies just to prove that God didn't really live in there. 63 BC, Pompey Magnus walked in there, and he said, if your God destroys me for walking in there, all of Rome will convert to Judaism today. Of course, he walked in there, nothing happened. So you, you, they kept getting confronted with this idea that God lived where they thought he lived, right? And it become really problematic. So so Jeremiah is watching the destruction of Jerusalem and going, God did this. God's anger. God threw us down. God forgot us. God burned us up. God is our enemy now. God has killed us. God is letting our enemies laugh at us. God is bringing the grief. That's Jeremiah. That's at Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 3 changes the tune a bit. Next slide. This is Lamentations chapter 3. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the quote we've heard our whole life. God's mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. But that is actually a response to a guy who just said that God was making women eat their own babies. And he somehow comes to this, he starts thinking it through. He says, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Let's think about that for a second. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will certainly show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anybody. Do you see the process of thought there? God's doing this. God threw us down. God did this. God made us our enemy. God, God, God. God did this. God did that. And then by Lamentations chapter 3, he's like, Upon further review, as I'm watching this and processing this, I don't think it might be God's compassion that we're not more destroyed. Actually, God doesn't cast off anyone forever. Even if he brings grief, it'll only be for a season. And then he ends up by going, actually, upon further review, I don't think God brings grief to anybody. What we're reading in Lamentations is a journal entry of a guy explaining how he was processing God and his story. And that should move us because how many of us have ever had to go through that process? You look at something quite painful and your first thought is God's doing this to me. Your next thought is why is God doing this to me? Your next thought, then you start reminding yourself, actually God is good. Even if this grief was brought by God, it'd only be seasonal because God's mercy is forever. Oh, actually, God doesn't, God doesn't cause grief on anybody, which leads to this question. Then why are we experiencing this? Maybe the writer is trying to get us to the point in, by letting us into his process by going, actually, what we're seeing is Jerusalem experiencing the consequences of non-consent to consent, that God has been consenting all along, and this is what happens when you don't consent. It's not God getting you. The natural consequences of non-consent, consequences get you, right? Next one. Are these portrayals of God's wrath consistent with what God disclosed about his nature to us in Christ? Could the real conundrum be rooted in our misrepresentation, our misperceptions of how God is present in the tragic consequences of our sin? That he's not abandoning us in the story. He's actually with us in the consequences of our non-consent. That there's consent and there's non-consent. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Is Jeremiah wrestling with the same irony that we do? What if Lamentations chapter 3 is not a contradiction of Lamentations chapter 2? Although... 
it sounds contradictory. And if, if you read the Bible a certain way, it definitely is. God cannot be our enemy, and then God cannot be the compassionate friend all in the same sentence, right? It's a contradiction, unless you see it as for what it is, which is, it is lamentations. It is a poem of reflection around how Jeremiah is processing his pain. What if Jeremiah, what if Lamentations chapter 3 is not a contradiction in Lamentations 2, rather, it's the Holy Spirit giving a message of enduring mercy as a counter-narrative, another way of perceiving the reality. But if you statically appropriate Lamentations chapter 2, you're going to run into a real problem, because God's doing something that is not in his nature to do. But if you look at it from the other point of view, which would be, in his love and his consent, he consents to our non-consent, and then the consequences look like wrath. And that's where the Jews got it from. A rabbi, or a first century person, or the early church, when they said the wrath of God, they were not talking about the active anger of God. They were talking about wrath as a metaphor of being handed over. That's the key phrase, being handed over to the intrinsic consequences of non-consent to consent. That is a much better way. Let's look at it this way. Next slide. If God operates in the world by consent, then we see wrath not as a retribution of a willful God, but as a metaphor for the consequences of God's consent to our non-consent. God's wrath is that he allows us to resist him, which includes our experience to the fallout that ensues. That makes sense. Next slide. When we interpret Old Testament prophetic or poetic language as strictly literal— with no consideration of the metaphor of being handed over. In the Old and New Testament, the wrath of God is framed as being handed over. In Isaiah, Isaiah was talking about the destruction of Israel, and he says what happened was, is God was not mad at us, but he handed us over to the consequences of not consenting to what he told us to do. In Romans, it's everywhere. It's God reached out in mercy, but your non-consent, you've been handed over to the non-consent that, that you did. We place our faith in an untenable position. Jesus and the New Testament writers interpret the wrath passages through a cruciform lens. Even the active wrath passages, when they're mentioned in the New Testament, are reformed. They're reinterpreted. Like, upon further review, the God revealed in Christ was not the death dealer. He was the life giver. And so something else was going on. Next slide. So the problems. The problems with wrath is when metaphors become literal. You can't read something written as a poem as if it's literal and expect to make any sense at all. Um, sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes that's not so obvious. Like, but nobody with any sense reads Song of Solomon literally. Unless you mean by literal, I'm taking it seriously, which, I, yes, amen. But you, you, her nose was not literally a tower. Her legs were not literally cedar trees. Her breasts weren't really as big as the hills of Bashan. Those are metaphors. These are, these are poems. No one reads parables literally. Unless you mean Jesus literally told the story and we should take it seriously. Yes, but a parable is fiction. So, so sometimes... The most profound truths are expressed in fiction form. The metaphors become literal. It's a problem. Or human experiences are deified. Well, because I would think like this, God must think like this. And then God then becomes a projection of just us. We're saying God, Jesus, Bible, Scripture, truth. We just mean ourselves with a giant megaphone. So then our wrath gets projected onto God's character. Next slide. 
But the lens of God revealed in the cruciform Christ, that if Christ is the ultimate and final way to see God, right? Like Moses said, you got to kill animals. Micah said, that's dumb. The cruciform Christ is like, if you need a sacrifice, let's just do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. That the final and full revelation of God is in the risen Christ. Then that means a couple things are true. One, that God is actually good. That God is actually good. That God is love. Paul later defining love said, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Well, if God is love and love keeps no record of wrongs, how should that then reframe our primary imagination of God as a record keeper? Like I was told when I was a kid, shame. One day you're going to go to heaven. Your whole life is going to get projected on a big screen. Okay, first of all, how boring would that be? That's first, right? You, you imagine that? There's been, what, 13 billion people who've lived and died. Let's say they lived an average of 50 years. That's 650 billion years of watching people's lives. That, how uncompelling can we make heaven, right? You imagine that? Next up, Methuselah. Settle in, everybody. It's a 900-year, like, calm on. And so the idea is, and like all lies, all lies have at least 70% truth to them. Like my grandmother told me, hey, Shane, even when I can't see you, right? Everybody, right? Now, is that true? Sure. Does God see everything? Yeah. Is it important that we keep an awareness of God in our life? Yeah. Is it important that we don't separate here from there? Yeah. But when that's all you heard, without any hearing that in his love and in his consent, he chooses to keep no record of wrongs, we end up with this weird sort of over the top of your head, there's a credit side, and over the top of your head, there's a debit side, and when you face Jesus one day, you better be in credit. But Jesus did die for you, so hopefully that worked. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what it is. God is love. God is also nonviolent. The God revealed in Christ is nonviolent. You never see Jesus sort of taking retribution on people, even when they're hurting him. The guy leading the charge to kill him gets his ear whacked off, and Jesus takes a second before he goes and gets tortured and heals the guy's ear. It's the ultimate. Paul later called the cross the end of hostility, that we should be so motivated by God, by the God revealed in Christ, that we, that we settle each other with conflict a little bit better. Next slide. In refusing to exercise violence, God nevertheless consents to our freedom, which we then abuse through violence. That human freedom and natural law. Like, you know, people say, oh man, why doesn't God just control the thing? Because God doesn't control things. He laid that down from the beginning. Like, and we only want God to control things when it suits us. And normally for innocuous things like... Please let the crows kick the goal. It's, it's, it's something normally as innocuous as that. But when we say, and once again, I'm not mad at people when they say God's in control. I'm not mad at that because I know what they mean. What they mean is, is God is in the center of your story. That God is in the middle of the story making a better narrative. Yes, yes, but control? Mm, no, God's not in control just because God doesn't do control. He could. But he laid that down to engage this human story, to consent to human freedom and natural law. Jesus addresses that in Luke 13. Remember, they say, who sinned that this person had a problem, right? 
Remember, Jesus goes, what a dumb question. Who sinned that the building fell on those people? Do you think that you're more holy or righteous than the people who died when the building fell down? And who sinned when Pilate chose to kill a bunch of people and spread their, spread their, spread their blood and mix it with the, with the offerings in the Holy of Holies? Who, who would sin with that one? Do you think you're more holy than them? In other words, no. That transactional theology doesn't work. Like, buildings fall down because of poor engineering or earthquakes. That's natural law. And sometimes bad things happen to people because people choose to do bad things. That's human freedom. But human freedom and natural law explains suffering. And the cross of Jesus Christ explains God's role in that, which is to not control it, but rather consent to it and engage the broken narrative, even if it cost him his own life. That is a better story. God's consent is not complicity, though. God's consent is not complicity. He just consents. Next slide. God may appear complicit in our violence because he has consented to our will. In love, God bears the guilt of maintaining relationship with violent people, even though he's going to get blamed for most bad things that happen. But actually, God's the one trying to bring a beautiful story out of the narrative. It's human beings stuffing the thing up, actually. Next slide. This is Isaiah 53. So if you ever, if you ever thought... That God punished Jesus, or God was responsible for it. Don't worry, Isaiah prophesied it a long time ago. Watch what he says. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Not that God did it, we thought that. Surely he took up our pain and suffering. Yet we thought God did it to him. But no, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In other words, we'll look at it and think God did it, but it wasn't God, it was us. It's being handed over to the consequences of non-consent to consent. And it was God revealed in Christ being willing to engage that. Next slide. So in love, God consents to undergoing the enduring of our wrath on the cross. And Isaiah says, we thought God did it. In other words, God's consent is his wrath. And his consent is his love. His love is consent. His wrath is his consent to our non-consent. Let's put some more language on this. Next slide. What if wrath is the painful result of God letting us get our own way? It's being handed over. So, so God's consenting, 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 consenting. We're rebelling, 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 rebelling. The natural consequences of that get seen by everybody. And everybody goes, oh, see, God got him. No, God didn't. Like, have you ever... Have you ever seen like a, um, this is no intention to point anybody out in particular. I'm, this is, if, all references to actual people are unintentional here. But have you ever, you ever seen like a 64-year-old man who happens to have a bit of money and he leaves the woman that's been faithful to him for 40 years for a 26-year-old girl? And the 26-year-old girl is obviously only with him for the money. And he's under this delusion that she actually loves him, you know. And everybody in here, if you saw that scenario, right, you would go, oh, no. Like, dude, you are fixing to put a lot of pain and suffering on your life. And then what happens? Loving people get around him and go, 
Yeah, don't do that. That woman's been with you the whole time. She's a good one. You should probably keep her. The, the young 26-year-old hottie just wants your cash. If you want to prove it, make her sign a thing that says she has no right to any of your cash and she, if she stays, right? And the guy's like, no, I know what love is. I love my wife, but I was never actually in love with her, right? That's, the, that's how you know someone's cheating, that sentence. Someone ever uses that sentence, they're cheating, okay? So, so you go, oh, you know, no, no, no. And then, and then loving people over and over and over again, extend consent of wisdom, please. Consent and wisdom, please. And he doesn't listen. And then you watch the natural consequence of that play out. Is that the wrath of God? Well, it is in a metaphorical being handed over to the non-consequences of non-consent to consent, but it's not the wrath of God in the whole active punishment. Like God is actively so ticked off he's going to get that guy, right? Those are two different images of the same thing. Wrath is the painful result of God letting us have our own way. What if God is not actively getting retribution because it isn't necessary because sin carries its own penalty or wages? Consequences built into the fabric of the universe. Next slide. In other words, I have no right to deny you the consequences of your actions. God laid down that right from the beginning. Because in this story, two things exist in simultaneous tension. One, the law of consequence. We'll call that wrath. And two, the gift of mercy. That even in our non-consent, God never abandons us in our broken story. He's always in the middle of it, trying to make a better narrative with more consent and more consent and more consent and more consent. And that's good news. Next slide. So wrath then is a metaphor for the intrinsic consequences of our refusal to live in the mercies of God. Once again, there, there's a way to say, is the wrath of God real? And the answer is yes. It just depends on what we mean by that. Do we mean that God can't get over stuff so he's going to actively get his pound of flesh? Uh, no. But what we do mean by wrath of God is that in his consent, he consents to our non-consent. And then we can be handed over to the intrinsic consequences of non-consent to consent. And that makes infinite more sense. That God's mercy endures forever. He never shuts off his mercy. So when mercy gives way to wrath, it's because we hit the off switch. By resisting the mercy, not God hitting the off switch of his love toward us. It's we hit the off switch. N next slide. Enduring mercy can be received by consent or rejected by non-consent. Like we're not universalist here, where it doesn't matter your participation or your, con your consent or your participation doesn't matter. God's just going to make you in. No, no, no. Our consent and our participation is not only necessary, it's essential. Because if, cons if love is the primary ethic, then consent is the thing. There's consent, and then there has to be consent back. Let's say it this way. Where intrinsic consequences abound, mercy abounds much more. In other words, even when we're handed over to the intrinsic consequences of non-consent to consent, and the wrath of God is upon us, God is still in the middle of that story, trying to get us out of it. Next slide. So here's some questions. One, when difficult circumstances hit, do we default to the imagination that God is angry and punishing us? God is angry and like something bad happens. We get a bad medical thing, hit some bad circumstance. Do we automatically default to God is mad at us? What if sin is the real punisher, not God? That the sin, the non-consent, the consequences of it, what if that's the real punisher, not God? 
How has God's care manifested for us in pain? Where have, where have we caused our own mess? And we realize, looking back on it, that we caused our own mess, but that God never left us in the middle of it. And that's, that's the lamentation story. It's like, I thought God did it to me, then I realized I did it to me, and then I realized God never left me even though I did it to me, even though it's my own stupid fault. I love that process of thought and lamentations. It's brilliant. Next slide. If mercy endures forever and wrath does not endure, what are the implications of that? If mercy endures but wrath doesn't, what are the implications of that? Um, I can't remember. Are there any more slides? Or is that it? That's it. So I want to then close by handling an obvious problem, okay? And that is that it clearly says, and I mean clearly, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. So what do we do with that? Okay, there's three ways to read it. One is that God's anger is active and retributive, and it's coming at us like a meteor. And Jesus wears a Superman suit and stands between us and the wrath of God and lets the wrath of God bounce off of him. That's one way to read it. And I want to be clear about this. I don't care how you read it. I actually don't care what you believe. I care how you believe what you believe. So even if you have a weird belief, if I say, so? If you go, I'm so motivated to live in more compassion and connect people to Christ, well then, like even if you had like an out there belief, like I think God is a nine-sided cube and the Antichrist is currently an eight-year-old Chinese boy named Tong Nguyen. Well, I'd go, well, okay, but so? And if you went, what do you mean so? I'm so moved by that to be kinder to my neighbor and more generous to the poor and live with centering people in the compassion of Christ. I'd go, okay, well, amen. So Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. Way number one to read that is God's wrath is retributive and active and is coming at us like a meteor and Jesus is going to stand between us and God. If you want to read it that way, great, fine. Second way to read it is that we, that we read how they would have meant wrath of God. So in that sense, it would be Jesus died to save us from the self-imposed inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. That Jesus' death was meant to save us from ourselves. It was meant to save us from our own problematic, stubborn issues with non-consent. And actually, that makes sense. And you could make a case from that from the Lord's Prayer. Remember the Lord's Prayer? He says, he says uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There's all kinds of horrible translations in that, by the way, which I think are just... I'm working on something new with that anyway. So give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so in the Hebrew version of Matthew and in the Greek version of Matthew, it's, it's yetzer hurrah. It, essentially, it's, it's, it's less save me from Satan. It's lead me not into temptation and save me from myself. 
It's like, save me from my tendency to ruin things. Save me from my yetzer hurrah, my evil inclination towards us, towards self-implosion, right? And so if you take the Lord's Prayer and then you, you put that in Romans, Jesus died to save us from being handed over to the intrinsic consequences of non-consent to consent. In other words, Jesus died to save us from ourselves, not from God. That's a second way to read it. So, first way to read it. God's anger. Active, punitive, retributive, coming at us like a meteor. Jesus stands in front of it like Superman. Let's it bounce off of it. Second way to read it is that Jesus died to save us from being handed over to the self-imposed, inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. He, he died to save us from ourselves. Here's the problem with both those things. I can read that whole thing in Greek. I know, it makes me a nerd. I get it. My, my, my minor in college was in New Testament Greek. I can, I can read Greek, which is why I still don't have a whole lot of luck with the ladies, okay? But I can read it in its original language. And I can tell you, you can trust me on this. I wouldn't lie about this. Or you, if you don't trust me, you can go look it up. It's biblehub.org, blueletterbible.com, Strong's Concordance, however you want to look it up. Or you can just buy a Greek New Testament and read it, right? The phrase of God is not there. It's not mistranslated. It's absent. It's not even there. And this is where, like, remember the old King James Version that was sort of big and you had a leather-bound thing, right? And the, I, I, I honor those guys because when they added words for readability, they put it in italics. They, they changed the font. So at least they were admitting it ain't there, but we put it there so that you can be, so you can read it a little bit better, okay? And so... In the old King James, in the leather-bound thing, it says, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. But the of God is italicized. In other words, they're admitting, not there. Not there. In the, but, but the problem is, in, in, in digital Bibles, which is what we all use now, it just says, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. The problem is, is the phrase of God is not there. This is what it says in the original language. Jesus died to save us from the wrath. That's it. Which leads to what question? Jesus died to save us from the wrath of... And it just leaves it. So translators in the 1600s said, of God. Because they got to make it readable. But you could put... Jesus died to save us from the wrath of death. Jesus died to save us from the wrath of sin. Jesus died to save us from the wrath of self. Jesus died to save us from the wrath of Satan. You could put of Satan, of sin, of death, of God, of self, of disease, of the government. Jesus died to save us from... Like, you could put anything in there. It just says, Jesus died to save us from the wrath. Which leads to this question. What was Paul talking about... When he says Jesus died to save us from the wrath. Here's the thing. Just a quick 45 second history lesson here on how we got the Bible. Okay. So, early 320s, a guy named Constantine takes over the Roman Empire. Constantine is friendly to Christians, which was unlike any other Roman emperor ever. And so they say that the, the, the first century, the, that first century, the early church leaders go, listen, we should pounce on this because the next guy might not be as nice. So 
While we have the opportunity, we should put our writings into a collection of books that eventually will be called the Bible, right? The, the, the library collection of our writings. And so they had a council, and in that council, they voted on which books were in and which books were out. And they put together what was called the canon, and they put that together. And now you have a collection of books called the canon that we now call the Bible, and that's put together. That's in the early 320s. Sixty years later, they had a second council where they added two books. So the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation was not included in the first cut. In the second cut, uh, they made a deal. The church at Constantinople wanted uh, Revelation in because it was about Asia Minor. The, the, the church in Rome wanted Hebrews in because it basically said the Jews didn't matter. And so they made, they made a deal where they would vote for each other's book. And then in the late 380s, now you had the whole canon that was agreed upon and put together. And you have the Bible, well, what we would call the Bible, right? Then in 1054, there was the great schism between the Eastern and the Western Church. You had the Eastern Reformation that made the Eastern Orthodox Church. Then 500 years later, in 1500, you had the Western Reformation. And the Western Reformers looked at the Bible and they just took out all the books they didn't like. And they put them in something called the Bensura, right? That's why somebody asked me the other day, they said, Shane, how come the Eastern Orthodox have more books in their Bible than we do? Why did they add books? Well, think about it. <clears throat> if they were here first, and they have more books, and we have less books, did they add books, or did we subtract them? Okay, so, there's a book that was in every Bible on earth until 1511. The book was called Ecclesiasticus, or the Wisdom of Solomon. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, it says this, that Messiah would come choose to suffer with humanity in order to save us all from the wrath of death. Now that was in Paul's Bible when he wrote Romans. So when Paul says Jesus died to save us from the wrath, first of all, he's calling Jesus Messiah. And second, what wrath is he referring to? Death, which is why three sentences later, what does he say? Therefore, death has no power. We've been saved, not from the wrath of God, but from the wrath of death. So, there's three ways to read that passage. One is that the angry God is coming at us and Jesus saves us from it. The second way is that Jesus died to save us from ourself, the self-inflicted, handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent, that he died to save us from the wrath of God. The third way to read it is that Jesus died to save us from the wrath of death. How did he do that? He died. What did he do to defeat it? He rose from the dead. It's sort of like, <clears throat> sort of like Moses and Pharaoh. When Moses, the New Testament writers often referred to the Exodus story as the, like, think of it this way. When Moses asked Pharaoh to let his people go, let my people go, did he pay Pharaoh off? No. He just said, we're leaving, with your blessing or without, it'll be better for you if you consent. And then what does he do? On the way out, he plunders Pharaoh's coffers on the way out. What if Pharaoh is the archetype of death? And what you find in Christ 
is that Christ enters into hell, into death, and he plunders the entire thing while he's there in order to set his people free from the wrath of death. Now that would be good news. So, my brothers and sisters of Edithburg and the York Peninsula, and frankly, Adelaide, because I see some of you here. Um, I hope the two hours we spent together this morning can lead us to a more Christ-like image of God. I didn't come to close any conversations, but rather open them. I hope we can think of things in a, in a way that makes Jesus more beautiful. When I, when I talk about spiritual things, I want people to love Jesus more, not hate Christians more. And um, may we present the Bible and Jesus in a way that's beautiful because it's awesome and it is beautiful. Now, I intended to take questions, but I've already went over my time because I thought it was important to really handle those passages. So let's just leave it there. And um, thank you for letting me be a part of your morning. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. May we be all rescued from being handed over to the self-inflicted internal consequences of non-consent to consent. How are we rescued by that? By consenting to the God revealed in Christ on the cross. That's what it was about. Maybe, may we live in that reality. Grace and peace, everybody. Um. Just for those who are part of our church, um, when Shane came today, I had no idea what he was going to speak about, and I didn't ask him to speak about anything, because you know what, Art Rosson and Edithburg last week, I spoke about what is God like, more Christ-like, and you would have heard the same, a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same questions. So, uh, yeah, so that was, uh, I don't think it's coincidence, but there's no there was no discussion about that and um, and the book that Shane put up to start with I didn't know he was going to put that book up but that was a book I've been reading over the last year by the way and I recommend it to you a more Christ-like God um, I hope that's made you start to look at things from different perspectives because this is what this sort of teaching should it should make us examine our foundations and what is good is, is strong, and what should be shaken should be shaken. And, uh, and we should go and cause us to go and study, re-study, and have a look and see, and see what God, and establish those things in our lives. So, so I hope you will do that. Um, did we recorded that? Yeah, we did. We did record that because who noticed that Shane speaks fairly quickly? And uh, sometimes you need to go over things again, so we do record record the, the audio of these things, not not the um, not the what's on the screen. Um, so tonight we'll be back here at seven o'clock. It will be slightly different format, um, but if you can get here, I hope you will um, look at Shane's resources. It's got some great series there, a great series on Revelation um, and some of the other. Um, things that are available. If you go to Shane's website, shanewillard.org or something like that, you can see a wider range. Everything he sells on that table 
goes towards supporting orphans and things, uh, the orphanages in um, China and also the work in, in Africa as well. And um, so uh, that's, that's why he does uh, put those uh, resources out. So I encourage you, you know, if um, that's sort of pricked some of your interest, have a look further, study further. And uh, thank you for coming today. And hopefully, if you're able to get back tonight, uh, please do. And uh, you're welcome to invite anyone. So thanks again.